But this morning, let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel. John's Gospel. You remember that the main theme of John's Gospel is toward the end of the Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, specifically verse 31. It says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And that's really the, the desire of, of the Lord, is that you would believe in him. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to salvation. In fact, he is salvation. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than by the name of Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we all receive him. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again, and know for sure that you're born again. If there's any doubt in your heart today whether you are truly one of God's children, just ask him, and, and continually be in prayer. And you know what? One of the things that the Holy Spirit will do is he will confirm in your own heart whether you are a child of God or not. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be void of problems and complications and fears and stresses and sin still. It doesn't mean that. But to know that you know that you are a child of God, so important in the days we live in, to have that assurance of salvation, the Bible teaches it. You can be assured of your salvation, because remember, it's not about a work that I do or that you do. It's something that God does. It's a promise that he makes, and he cannot lie, and he will not lie to you. So be encouraged in that. Receive the gift of salvation and walk in it. Abide in it. And you abide in it by being in his word. You abide in it by being in prayer, thinking of, you know, and, and speaking to the Lord all throughout the day. You know, you don't have to speak words out loud. If you do that, people will think you're crazy. But that's okay. People do it now. They have those little AirPods in their ear. They got one of them in their ear, and they're walking around, and they're talking, and you're like, is there something wrong? Oh, oh. then, then you see it, and you're oh, okay, now I, I get it, right? So maybe just join the fray. Maybe put an AirPod in your ear. And then just so, Lord, I just thank you for this day, and I thank you for this gentleman over here who's staring at me, thinking that I'm, I've lost my mind. Lord, save his soul. <laughs> you know, something to consider. But the theme is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was a gentleman by the name of Ian Thomas who, was, who gave a message back at the Moody Bible Institute many years ago, and he said this about Jesus in the Gospel of John. He said, he... Jesus had to come as he came, meaning born of a virgin, in order to be what he was, a perfect man inhabited by God. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He died to redeem us, and he had to do what he did so that we might have what he has, his life, life eternal, all that we lost in Adam. And we have to have what he has in order to be what he was. Perfect. Man inhabited by God. I like that. He had to be those things in order that we might have the righteousness of God. He did it for us. Let's read um, John uh, verses 19 through 34. Let me just read them to you and follow along in your Bible. It says, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he Coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to, to loose. And these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit... 
descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And notice how he ends this section. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, as we go through this this morning, we know that we're reading the Gospel of John. Don't get confused. John the Apostle from John the Baptist. Two separate men. And, um, but as we look at John the Baptist's ministry here, we have to understand that he was really a herald. A herald. Meaning in history, a herald would go out before the arrival of a king or a monarch. You've seen them. He comes out maybe with a, with a trumpet or he comes out with a scroll and hear ye, hear ye. The great and mighty Richard Williams is speaking now. Sorry, Richard. And, uh, and then everybody would know that a message, a proclamation from the king was coming forth. And sometimes they were ambassadors, but they spoke on the behalf of the sovereign that they served under. And John the Baptist was such a person. He was a herald going before the great king of kings and the Lord of lords, our savior, Jesus Christ. That's who John was. And again, I love the credibility of this because we know that John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin, because John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, she was a Levite, and her husband, Zacharias, we read about that in, in Luke chapter 1, which we'll see in a few moments. But John was a cousin of Jesus, and so he knew John, and John knew him. We don't know exactly how much they knew each other, but they certainly knew each other enough. And what great credibility that this man, John the Baptist, would go and allow his head to be literally severed from his body, believing in this cousin of his. Wouldn't he know if, if Jesus was ever uh, sin, had sin in his life? As they grew up together and maybe interfaced at different times, wouldn't John know? Wouldn't the wheels be spinning in his mind? Because if at any time Jesus was any different, John would say, I'm not dying for this man because he is not perfect. We know that the Messiah who's coming is perfect, and this man is not perfect, if indeed he did sin, but he did not. The Bible says that he was without sin. He was tempted in all points as you and I were, yet without sin. That includes from the moment he was born and all those teenage years that, we, that the, the Scripture doesn't say anything about. Jesus was perfect, and John witnessed to that. He bore witness to that. That's a great, great credibility of who he said Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. And that's what we talked about last week. I love what it says in Romans 5, verse 7. It says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one, will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone will, would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus died for us, and John was even willing to die for Jesus. He was willing to die. And John dying for Jesus, to me, makes sense because the lesser died for the greater. That seems like the right thing to do. But Jesus dying for sinful man, that doesn't make sense, does it? The holy for the unholy, you and I. But see, that is the mystery of the gospel. That God, who is without sin, would die and for me and, and die for you. That doesn't make sense, does it? It would make sense for me to die for him. Even though I can't atone for anything because he's sinless. It's not I'm atoning for anything, but it makes sense for me to die for someone who is like God. But God says, you know what? That's what religion does. Religion says, I'm going to lay down my life so that I can earn my way. And God says, oh, no. I'm going to do everything. All you have to do is receive it. All you have to do is receive that truth that he died for us, not us for him. But yet we are called to die daily, aren't we? To die to ourselves, to put the old man to death, this old nature, these old deeds that we, that we participate in. The Bible has lists of those things in Paul's letters, fornication, adultery, and hatred, and variance, and emulations, all these really cool words but it's a nasty list, and that is the flesh. But the news, the good news of the gospel. 
Let's go back to verse 19. It says, now this is the testimony of John. Now, again, this is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, the author of this, uh, this gospel. It's John the Baptist. And notice, and this... Um, and John was the son, like I said before, of Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both Levites. So Elizabeth was the cousin of Mary. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. We're just going to look at a couple of things here. In Luke chapter 1, since we are talking about John the Baptist, let's look at his beginning and let's look at the miraculous thing, the miraculous prophecy that was spoken concerning him by the angel Gabriel, his purpose for coming to the earth. Notice in verse 5 of Luke 1, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And then in verse 11 it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear, bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, but he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will take away, or excuse me, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And here's verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this proclamation is that it gives us, really, the role of John the Baptist coming into the earth. Just as John had a purpose coming into this earth, do you know that God has a plan for your life, too? Have you discovered what that is? Are you curious of what it is? But notice that he will go before him. John the Baptist will go before Jesus, notice, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnated or anything like that. He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And in verse 76 of that same chapter, Zacharias was prophesying and he said this concerning his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To prepare his ways. Our hearts need to be prepared. They need to be open and ready. And that's what John did. He prepared a people so that literally he could hand the package off, the church, he could hand them off and say, Jesus, here is, you know, here's your bride. I've done what I've could, what you've called me to do, to prepare them, to bring them to a, a place of brokenness and aware, awareness of who they are. And now I give them to you. Now you take them. You save them. And that was John's role. And notice in verse 80 of that same chapter, it says, So the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit, was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So he was in the deserts. He was a Levite, and yet he chose to, either by, by uh, the, the, the unction from the Spirit of God, to be out in the deserts as God was preparing him. God was preparing him in a place of solitude, in a place of obscurity, away from the limelight, away from the crowds and the people, even away from his responsibility, if you will, of being a Levite and following in his father's footsteps. That would be the normal role for a, a son like John. But God often does his greatest work in seclusion. 
And the greater the work, the greater the preparation. We know this when we look at Moses' life. Remember, Moses was in Pharaoh's house. He was born in Egypt. And he was in Pharaoh's house with the the, the finest education for 40 years. And then finally, remember one day when he was around 40 years of age, he sees an Egyptian fighting with one of his own people, the, the Jews. And he gets angry because the Egyptian was whipping the Hebrew servant. And so Moses rises up, kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then finds out that he... His deed has been made aware of, so he flees to Midian, where he meets a man by the name of Ruel, or we might call him uh, Jethro. And Jethro had a daughter named Zipporah, and he married her, and he took care of Jethro's sheep there in Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia in that area. For 40 years, he followed those sheep around in the desert, until one day he went to the backside of the desert, where he had the encounter with God. But it was an obscurity. He was away from everything. In fact, all of his upbringing in Egypt, you know, he had the finest of everything. He was, had the silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. And God says, I've got to get Egypt out of you before I can really use you. I've got things I've got to do in your heart, Moses. And it's interesting that at 80 years old, the Lord appears to him in that bush and says, go deliver my people. And remember, he argued with the Lord. <laughs> Lord, I can't speak. I don't have a, a swift tongue. I, you know, all of his confidence had been stripped away. I'm sure when he was 40, living in Egypt and being the second in command, an heir to the throne, if you will, he's thinking to himself, I've got it all made, and I can speak fluently in several languages, perhaps. I've got all this going for me. Pretty uh, confident guy. And God says, I've got to take you out into the desert to prepare you. I need to get Egypt out of you so I can send you back to deliver my people. It's interesting, isn't it? God would do the same thing with John the Baptist, living in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. What was God doing in his life out there, I wonder? Stripping him of all of his confidence, giving him a holy zeal, God had to change him first before he could be an agent of change for others. Because John was a firebrand. John the Baptist was one of these fiery prophets. Wild looking. Wore camel's hair. He had a leather belt like like a prophet did. His hair is probably all messed up. And it says that he ate locusts and wild honey. So he's probably got these little legs of stuff, you know, in his beard, you know. And it's kind of, you know, a little bit moist and kind of, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen it. But he had to prepare him. But like John, God has a plan for your life. Again, do you know what it is? It was prophesied what John was supposed to do. There's nothing in the scripture for me as far as specifically what I was supposed to do. Because the Bible would be very thick if it encouraged, all, you know, if it had all of our, the will of God for each of us. But you know what? God will reveal that to you if you desire to know it. One of the great things that I wanted to know as I became a believer in Christ, is I really wanted to know the will of God for my life. I'm like, Lord, if you have truly saved me and, and you've preserved me and you've, you've kept me alive this time, at this time and you saved my soul, I owe you everything. What can I do? I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And I certainly tried to make things happen, and I messed them up. God has a wonderful way of guiding, but I really sincerely desire to know the will of God. And folks, can I tell you, I, I'm going to be honest with you about this, for, because it happened in my life. I tried to make something happen because I thought that, you know, I, I, wanted, I felt like I, it was all up to me. And for, you know, a handful of years, I, I did that. And finally, I just gave up. And, and, you know, from Pastor Jeff's exhortation to me, as well as, well as reading the word, I got to the point where I'm like, Lord, this is your business. I don't know how to get from point A to point B. Because what happens in the middle is your business. I don't know how to get there. And the fact that I'm standing before you today is a mystery to me because it wasn't something that I had planned. God was working. He's meandering in my life, and I had no idea had no clue. I didn't even want to do this. But God is the one who calls us. And as we go along, and if we desire to know his will, trust me, if you want to know his will, 
pray about it, and it's up to him to do the rest. You don't have to stress and fight and kick. You don't have to worry. Just walk each day, and the opportunities will present themselves. Trust me, they will. It's up to him. You cannot do it yourself. So don't try. Just pray and trust him and walk with him every single day of your life and be open. And even if you make a mistake, he's able to get you back on the path again. Do you believe that? I believe that. And I'm testimony. I'm a testimony of that. And many of you are too. But do you want to know what it is? Pray. Seek him. Find out what it is. Just like John, God had a plan for him. He's got a plan for you. Don't look for the glamorous things. Seek to do the little things. Be faithful in the little things, and the Lord will reward you with the greater things. And John, he could have had a career in serving the temple. It would have been a very easy thing for him to do. He just kind of falls in line with what all of his other brothers would do. And it's a good thing. It was a wonderful thing. But God had a plan for him that was different from his other brothers. God does that. He's very very unlike the cookie-cutter thing. Don't ever be a cookie-cutter Christian. You are unique and individual, and you're special in God's eyes. He loves you just the way you are. He doesn't want to make another someone like you. No, he made you, and he broke the mold. And he's very comfortable with that. He's like, I don't need a fancy speaker. I don't need somebody who's got all this and all that. I've called you to do this. Yes, you're not qualified. Yes, you feel insecure. Yes, you don't have all the the pedigrees and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. If God calls, he equips. He pays for what he orders. And he wants to do that for you. Find out what it is and go after it with all of your heart. Go after it. Seek to do it. And like I said, John could have, he could have just fallen in line and been, and been a priest like the rest of them, you know. But, you know, and his father, Zacharias, could have forbid him. He could have forbid him, but he didn't, you know. And they could, Zacharias could have said, you know what, son, I wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer, I wanted you to be this. Oftentimes our parents have a plan for our life. They want us to be successful. They want us to have a good income. They want us to be able to provide for ourselves. And all those fine things are fine and good. But God, why does God never enter the equation, parents, when your son or your daughter is growing up and they have a desire to serve the Lord? We don't have the right as a parent to tell our child what they should be doing. We can certainly steer them in the, in the way that we see that their, 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 their temperament and where they're going and have an idea. But you know what? Try to remain as hands-off as you can when it comes to these kinds of things. Let them figure it out. Pray for them. Pray with them. And let God direct them. I mean, would it be a, a, a bad thing for them to desire to be a missionary? That strikes the fear in most parents. It doesn't mean that it has to be forever. It could be for a couple years, and that's it. Maybe that's all that God called them to do is this one thing. John's ministry only lasted six months. And he was written in the Bible hundreds of years before it came to pass. So it doesn't matter. Stay out of the way of your children. Let God guide and direct them. Do they want to be a worship leader? Do they want to be a Christian worker? Do they want to be a pastor? Do they want to be a teacher? An evangelist? Whatever it is. Instead of discouraging them from those things, which we all, we, all, we all see that and think, well, that's what the losers do. And none of us want to, have, to be able to go to a party somewhere and, and say, well, what does your son do? Well, he just got accepted to Harvard. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, he's at Harvard now. And I bought him a brand new, uh, you know, uh, Tesla, you know, for his birthday. He's going for the fine, you know, he's political science. What does your son do? He's a missionary. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the way most of us feel. What does your son, what does your daughter do? My daughter serving in you know, uh, another ministry overseas. My son is a worship leader. My son is going, he's studying to be going to the pastorate. He, whatever it is. And yet, those are the things that nobody wants to admit to anybody else that their son or daughter's in. And why is that? It's the greatest thing in the world. It's better than any other job. Seriously. I mean, we say that, but we really don't believe it. It is. 
I really believe that what I get to do is greater than what the president does. I love it. I get to share a message several times a week that he never even, he doesn't even know. This is important, folks. Don't assume that a lawyer and a, and a doctor and all these high fluting jobs, there's nothing wrong with them, okay? There's nothing wrong with them at all. But if your child has a desire to serve the Lord, you, let, you, you get behind them, you pray for them, and you let the Lord do what he's going to do. And it may be only for a season. And then they go to school and they get their other degree or whatever. It doesn't mean it's forever. John's, again, John's ministry was six months. If John hadn't been beheaded, John may have gone back into the ministry, perhaps with his father in, in, in Jerusalem, and been part of the priesthood. God had a specific plan. That's what I want you to do. So let's not be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't get in the way of your children and encourage them in it. Encourage them. Don't discourage them. Notice in verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests from Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? That's the first of two questions that they would ask him. And I can almost hear the religious leaders saying, Nothing spiritual happens in this town unless I hear of it. <laughs> this is our town. And if you're going to come and share some doctrine, I want, we want to know about it. And that's really what they were coming to John about. Who are you? You're drawing a lot of crowds, and I think many of them were jealous because they've been teaching for a long time, and everyone is yawning, looking at their watches while these Pharisees and scribes are teaching. And John is out in the desert on the east side, you know, uh, of, he's out there by the Jordan. They got to walk out there. They got to they got to travel to go see him. And there's crowds hearing him and and, and getting baptized for the you know the the remission of sins, a baptism of repentance. He was able to captivate them. Why? Because he was empowered by the Spirit. Those guys in the temple were not. They were going through the motions. They didn't have the Spirit of God in them, much less upon them. But John knew the Lord. John knew the Lord. He was a firebrand. The Spirit of God was upon him, and that was the difference. That was the difference. We need that same Holy Spirit today to be effective in the world we live in. Remember what Peter shared on the day of Pentecost. Without the Spirit of God in upon him, he could have shared, and nobody would have responded. Maybe a couple. But with the Spirit of God upon him, oh boy, 3,000 people that day and then the other days, a couple more thousand. That's the difference between the spirit upon a person and not upon a person. So how important is it? It's extremely important. And again, we can't pull that trigger. I can't push a button on my phone and say, you know, there's not a Holy Spirit app where I can just press the button and say, baptize me now, because it's not about us. If you look in the first several chapters of Acts, you see the Spirit of God filled them. He came upon them. And did they have any say over it? Were they like saying, Lord, this would be a great time now because we're in front of all these Gentiles, like at Cornelius' house. We're in front of all these Gentiles. This would be a really good time because they need to hear this message. They were just faithful in doing what God told them to do, and he did the rest. And he did it. I can't control it. I can't say, now's the time, you know, be me up, Scotty, kind of thing. I don't have it. But am I open to receive it? Are you open to receive the Spirit of God upon you? Are you praying about that every day? Lord, baptize me. We'll look at that a little bit later. But we need that just like John needed it. And notice in verse 20, he confessed, and he did not deny. He says, he says but confess, he says, I am not the Christ. This word Christ is Christos. It's equivalent to Mashiach or Messiah, the anointed. They all mean the same thing. So when you see Christ, that's literally what it means, the Messiah. And it's interesting that over the centuries, there have been many who have made claims uh, of being Christ. And John, of all the people in the Bible, he was one of the more qualified ones, if there ever was one, even though he was from the wrong tribe. He was from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. But John was a fiery speaker. He was filled with the Spirit of God. And yet there have been lesser people 
who have claimed to be Christ over the centuries. And none of them were, because there couldn't be, because only Jesus is Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 24, in his uh, Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. He says, Don't believe them. There's only one Christ, and he ascended. He's there now. And at some point, he's going to come back for his bride, the church, in the rapture. Are you looking forward to that? I am. But he... But John the Baptist denied that he was the Messiah. He was a great and faithful servant. And notice in verse 21, they asked him, he says, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And he says, are you the prophet? And he said, no, I am not. So they've asked him three things. Are you the Christ? Are you, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He denied that he was Elijah because Elijah had died many centuries prior. He did. So how could John be Elijah? unless he was born with the spirit and the power of Elijah. And didn't we read that this morning in Luke chapter 1, that the, the angel Gabriel told him, told his parents that this would be the spirit and the power of Elijah would be upon him, and he'd be, the spirit of God would be upon him from his birth. Didn't he say that? In Malachi chapter 3, written some 400 years prior to the timing that we're looking at in this gospel at this time of John the Baptist's ministry, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This was a direct prophecy of John the Baptist, written 400 years before he would even be born. That's pretty, pretty amazing, isn't it? You'll have to remember this verse. The, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Isaiah is going to say something different. We'll see a little bit later. But notice in John, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 17, after John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, and after the transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John were up on the mount and they saw Jesus transfigured before them, and he and Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah, and remember, they've been dead for hundreds of years. And Jesus is there talking with them about his crucifixion and his impending, uh, his, his crucifixion coming not many days from then. But notice in verse 10 of Matthew 17, and his disciples asked him, saying, and this is after they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, after they saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus transfigured. They said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, indeed, Elijah is coming first. Wait a minute. Elijah, John the Baptist died four chapter, you know, three chapters ago. And he's saying that Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah has come already. Okay, which is it? He's coming, but yet he has already come. Both are true. Notice in verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatsoever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. When we look at verse 11 there in Matthew 17, where Jesus said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. He's speaking of, we believe, the one of the Elijah literally coming back at the end of the days. Remember, we looked at this in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses that will come upon the earth during the great tribulation period. We believe one of those is definitely going to be Elijah. He's going to come. So Jesus said he is coming, but he also said he has already come. And it's kind of a mystery, but it's really nothing to be concerned about because we already know what the, the angel Gabriel said about John, that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And certainly when we look at verse 12, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist's death just as Jesus himself would die. We don't have time to go there, but if you look at Malachi chapter 4 in verse 5 and 6, it also talks about Elijah coming before the great and coming, the, the coming dreadful day of the Lord. Again, that's speaking of that moment, we believe, when he will return and be one of the two witnesses recorded for us in Revelation chapter 11. But notice what they also said, are you the prophet? So he, he denied that he's the Christ. He denied that he's Elijah the prophet. 
And they said, are you the prophet? And some Christian preaching, it was held to that the prophet and Christ were one and the same. But the Jews, they distinguish between those two, but I think we'll see in a few minutes that they really are one and the same. Even though the Jews kind of held them as two different people. And um, in John chapter 7, verse 40, it says, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Remember that, the prophet. Who is this prophet that's being spoken of? Others said, this is the Christ. So now they're making a differentiation between the two of them. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? But if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, he said this. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest we die. And the Lord said to me, what you have spoken is good, I will raise up for them a prophet, capital P, and this is the prophet that they're speaking of, like you from among your brethren, and will be, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And this is speaking, this prophet that the Jews are asking John, are you the prophet? This is the prophet, the one recorded for us in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and verse 18. This prophet is none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Acts, Peter, speaking in the temple, he ascribed the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 that we just looked at to Jesus Christ. You can read that yourself. Acts chapter, thir- or, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 through 26. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, in his sermon before the high priest, he attributes this prophet as being none other than Jesus Christ. Read those passages. Finally, in John, John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 14, it was after the feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, it says in verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign, the miracle that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. And there it kind of ties it all up in a nice little bow. This is the prophet. Of course it is. So they were asking, are you, are you him? There was even some confusion in their minds, whether the Christ and the prophet, and, and, and it doesn't matter. Are you, the, are you Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, John says, I'm none of those things. Will you stop asking me? <laughs> I'm none of those. Well, who are you then? <laughs> who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourselves? And notice what he says. He points them to the word of God. What does he say? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the, the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. That's what Isaiah said. It's on the screen before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight, the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Again, I love this. He's so faithful. He could have said, you know, you know he could have gotten fed up and just said, you know what, I... And, and wanted some kudos for himself, but he didn't. Are you Jesus? Well, I kind of am related to him. You know, if you want to touch my hand, you can. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. I'm not, I'm not Jesus. Are you the prophet? Well, who are you? And he points them to the word of God, which is what we should be doing. Not pointing people to teachers and leaders. You know, in America, we love to do that. So what did the Lord show you today? Oh, man, I watched Charles Stanley. Well, what did the Lord show you? He told me that he talked to Charles, or watched Charles Stanley. But what did Charles Stanley, what did the Lord show him that, that ministered to you? We're, we're, we tend to do that. He says, no, right here in the word, this is who I am. 700 years before I was born, guys, Isaiah the prophet prophesied by the Spirit of God that I would come. And here I am. Read it and weep. <laughs> here I am.
in Luke chapter 3, in verse 3, it says, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching the ba- a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then again, he, he lists this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is who he is. This is who John is. John was a voice where Jesus is the word. He's a forerunner for the word. He's the voice. He's the herald going before the Messiah. Getting them ready, making their rough places smooth, and bringing the valleys low. Notice that John is pointing them to the Old Testament prophets. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, it says this, and uh, it says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in other cities. And when John had heard in prison, by this time John the Baptist was in prison, by the time John had heard in prison about the words of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to Jesus, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And obviously John was discouraged. He knew his time was short. And he's like, You're the one that we've been waiting for, right? i got to know this. And you can understand the humanity of John. Even though he was fiery and filled with the Spirit, he, had, he was a human being. He had moments of, of doubt and maybe a little bit of discouragement. And notice, verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to those men who John had sent, Go and tell John. And I, I wonder the tone that he said this. It was probably so gentle and caring and loving. He says, Go and tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is he preaching from? What is Jesus quoting from? Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4 through 6. Now Jesus is pointing, telling John, go look at the word. These are the things that I'm doing. In other words, everything that's happening in your life, John, is by design. Don't you worry. You were, you were doing the right thing. I am who you said I was. And I am the Son of God. The word of God become flesh. I am. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, that he said to them, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothings are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Again, Jesus quoting from Malachi chapter 3. And he goes on, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He was the bridge of the Old Testament to the New Testament. He was the bridge in between. Not only would John point them to the word of God, but John would also point them to the word of God, Jesus Christ. And John's motto for his life was very simple. It's recorded in John 3, verse 30. He must increase. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And that should be true for us. It's not about us. I'm not, none of us are trying to build a kingdom on this earth. There's already a kingdom waiting for us. We want to be a part of that. We exalt the king of that kingdom. We don't build our own kingdoms. It's not about us. It's not about our ministry. And again, there's nothing wrong with a big ministry as long as the ministry is God-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-centered. And there's integrity and holiness in it. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're not to build kingdoms on this earth. We serve a king and we await a kingdom. Amen? During the time of the Roman Empire, people were often hired to go out as as the Caesar or some high-ranking magistrate would go from one town to another. They would literally, when we think about this scripture about making the hills low and, and making the smooth places or the rough places straight and, you know, the crooked places, make them straight and all that stuff, they would actually send out people to make sure that the road from this city to that city was was good enough so that... Caesar or whoever the high-ranking official is, when they rode in their chariot or in their, in their carriage, 
that it would be as smooth as possible. That means anything that's rough, they would skirt away. Anything that was a potholes, they would fill them in. They'd make the rough places straight. They would make it smooth. How much more so for the king of kings and the Lord of lords? But it wasn't a physical road that John was concerned about. It was rocky hearts. Hearts that were just jagged with sin and bitterness and anger. He was preparing them, getting them ready, so that when Jesus arrived on the scene, and as we'll see next week, or in the next couple of weeks, John would say, Behold, the Lamb of God. He was telling his disciples, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, he would say, Behold the Lamb of God, follow him. I'm done. And he just starts to little by little vanish. And he knew his role. He wasn't like, i got to hang on to this ministry. I need a job. No, he's like, no, my job's done here. See ya. (laughs) And he tells his disciples, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Go, Go for him. But notice... As they come out to John in the wilderness, those who were sent, who were the, of the Pharisees, this religious sect of sometimes of around 6,000 people, 6,000 men. They were part of the Sanhedrin, which was a, a group of ruling men, uh, 71 of them, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. It was their job, they thought, to know what was going on because Jesus and John were upsetting the apple cart John was getting awfully popular. They had to find out why. And John answered them, verse 26, saying, I baptize you with water, but there stands... I baptize you with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. They probably didn't recognize him because he wasn't trying to be a superstar like they were. They were dressed in the finest robes, demanded their respect. Everybody looked up to them. And John is saying, there stands one among you guys you're not even aware. I mean, what if God were in the midst of us today? If he walked in, would we recognize him? He certainly wouldn't be one of those men who had his hair just the right way, dressed in a slick suit, looking the part, talking the part. Handsome. The Bible says that he was without form. There's no, there's no beauty about him that we should desire him. Very plain. He had to be pointed out. And he says, there's one standing, you, you don't even know who he is. He's standing among you guys. Do you even know it? You who are spiritually discerning or are supposed to be are you aware of what's happening? John was certainly aware. John was on fire. He was like, he didn't even know who, who, who the Lord was going to bring. He didn't know that it was his son, his cousin yet, until the Lord revealed it to him. But he was out there faithfully preparing the road, preparing the hearts for the Messiah. He didn't know when the Messiah would show up. Think of that. That's kind of unnerving. You go out there and you're, you're just out there doing your thing. And you don't know when it's going to happen. You're just being faithful. The Pharisees and those who came, they were powerful and sought prestige, but Jesus was meek and gentle. They were ostentatious and and sought reputation, but Jesus, who was he? He was humble, of no reputation. In verse 27 it says, It is he who is coming after me who is preferred before me. He is preferred, he's coming after me, but he was, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to unloose. We know that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus was born. So it kind of is interesting here that he says, it is he. Coming after me is preferred before me. John was the older. But he wasn't speaking so much of age here. After his ministry, Jesus would take over. And notice he said, he is preferred before me, giving truth, a truth concerning his preexistence. That Jesus wasn't like everybody else. He preexisted before he came into the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's what John is saying. 
And notice, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Bethabara was, re, in many texts of the Bible, in, the, in the, um, many of the manuscripts, the majority of them, Bethany was originally the word there instead of Bethabara. But Bethany, not the place where Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha lived, because that's on the that's on the Mount of Olives. But this Bethany, this place they substituted Bethabara, is a place out in the Jordan River, east of Jerusalem. He's out there, perhaps in the place where the Israelites crossed over centuries prior to that, where there was a, enough water where he could baptize people. This is where he was. They were, these things were done in Bethabara or Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, testifying of Jesus. How about you? He had a voice. He was the voice in the wilderness. What about your voice? Where is your voice in these days that we live? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him I will also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be those of his own household. Have you experienced that? It's an unfortunate part of our walk. Your enemies aren't necessarily the ones who are saying bad things about you. Often it's the people in your own house who have had enough of this Jesus stuff. Their hearts have become hardened. And Jesus said, don't worry. This is just part and parcel of being one of my kids. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Those are really difficult words. That's probably one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible for us. It just means in comparison. It doesn't mean that you can't love your family. Of course you love your family. Of course you love your daughter. Of course you love those things. But when God has a call on your life, you still take care of them. You don't abandon them. You still love them. But your love for Christ and what he's called you to do is the main thing. It's important that we do that. Young people, have you considered serving the Lord? Where's your voice? You got a lot of things to say. Your parents might want you to keep your mouth quiet, but you got a voice. What are you using your voice for? And that goes for us adults too, but young people, teenagers, what are you doing with your voice? Where is your voice? Have you considered serving the Lord? Have you considered being a Bible teacher, a pa pastor, excuse me, a worship leader, a missionary, Christian worker? Or are your only options college, marriage, a career? Is that all you've got? In our culture, that's all you've got. You've got to go to college. Why? Our culture has, has bred this idea that as soon as you're out of high school, Got to go to college. Why? Why? You know how many kids are going to college that shouldn't be there? I went to college when, when I was in college, and I went too. But, you know, I did, I, did the, I did the thing that I thought everybody, you know, that I, I caved into the pressure, and I did it. I remember being in college at Stetson University, and there was this young man who, was, who lived next door to me in the dorm that I was in, and his father was loaded. I mean, this kid, no kidding. He had a, this is back in 1992, 93. His father bought him a Mitsubishi G2000, a red one. This thing looks like a Lamborghini. The kid shouldn't have been in college. All he did is drink and have girls in and out. In fact, one night, <laughs> 
He opened up the, we had big windows in the, in the dorms and he got mad, he came home drunk. And then he went to go turn on his TV and it wouldn't work. So what does he do? He throws it out the window and smashes on the floor on the, from the second floor, you know, story. And then his, his roommate told me later that he had unplugged it that night. Of course it's not going to work, because guess what? There's no power going into it. My point is, all he did was drink, and he dropped out because he was not ready for college. He wasn't there for the right thing, but he was supposed to go because his family said, you got to go. This is what we do in America. We, we graduate from high school, and, as, and before you're even graduated, you've got to get all your ducks in order, and you've got to get your student loans together, and you're just in stress, and I've got to get this you know, application in. I've got to find out about all these student loans, and... <sighs> And the pressure's intense. Why is that? I went through that. I would encourage you parents not to stress your kids out. Maybe they shouldn't be in college. And I know what you're saying. Well, if they don't, they're not going to get a good job. Well, that's the way the world is, isn't it? It's really unfortunate. Maybe let them have a little bit of say. Maybe they do need the direction. Maybe they do need to go. But what about getting involved? If they're a, a Christian... What about going to Bible college for two years? They're young enough. They can do it. They got time. What about getting involved in a mission? What about getting involved in the local church? What about doing something? What about just waiting and making sure that you're supposed to go? Instead of just sending, spending thousands of dollars, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. And they're like, I don't want to go. But you got to go because I want to be able to tell all my friends that you're in college. Oh, did I say that out loud? It's true. We don't want our kids, we don't want the perception that they're sitting home playing video games. Maybe they need to learn a little responsibility before they go to college. Maybe they need to get a job for a year or two. But not in America. America, where have you gone? Why do we have to fit the pattern of the great American dream? The great American dream is not only unattainable, but it's not reality. And the pressure of it just makes people go psychotic. Got to have this, got to do that. Why? Who said? Well, the pressure, peer pressure. My parents. Examine that. Examine that. So where is your voice, young people? God has given you a wonderful voice. Where is it? What are you doing with it? Stand up. Do the right thing. Do good things. Don't be ashamed what are the things that you talk about? What is your passion? What is your passion? Find out what it is. And make sure that it's directed by the Lord. Because let me tell you, and we'll end here. The greatest life is a life that has not been designed by the person themselves. It is a life that's been designed by their creator. And I can tell you that I had a plan for my life. God changed my life. I'm in a completely different place than where I started. And you know what? I'm the most blessed man on the planet. I really am. Because when we're in the center of God's will, whatever he has for you, you are going to be blessed. You're going to be happy. And isn't that what it's really all about? Wouldn't the world, doesn't the world need to see happy Christians? I mean, Christians who are like, I really love what I get to do. Rather than being the missionary and you weren't called to the mission field, but you're over there and you're like, you know, looking at your fingers going, man, I hate this. And the natives that you're supposed to be ministering to are like, I wish you'd go home. We were doing really well until you showed up with all of your books. No, find out what it is. Pray and seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. What have you got for me, Lord? What have you got? You've, got? you've given me a voice. What am I using the voice for? I'll end there. Let's stand. What are you, what's your passion? Is your passion to be a, the very best for Jesus in whatever you do? Now, if you work at Xerox, do it the very best for him. If you work, if you own a business, do it the very best for him. Do everything above board. Do everything by the book. Do things well. Treat your employees good. Treat those, you know, 
Do it well. Do everything that you do well. Do it the very best because you represent a great king and your voice, believe it or not, even though you may not say a word, your voice will be known by your, your actions. But by all means, speak as well. People will see you. They'll see your actions. They'll be like, that man's got a voice. That woman has got a voice. I love that voice. It's so unique. It's not unlike any other voice in the world. All the other voices are telling me that I should do this. If it feels good, do it. All the other voices are telling me that I got to do this and do that. God's got a voice, and he's placed that voice in you. What is your voice, young people? Ask the Lord, and don't stop. You keep seeking. You keep knocking, and you wait upon him. And don't let anybody pressure you. And parents, don't pressure them while they're seeking. It may take time. God prepared Moses, and how long was he in the desert being prepared? Forty years. How many years was John in the desert being prepared of the Lord? We don't know for sure, but quite a number of them. So why should we rush to some American checklist? Be careful. Let's be prayerful. And set your young people free from the distraction Amen. Amen. Father, we just come before you. We thank you for this time. Pray that, Lord, you'd encourage us, Lord. And, Father, may we be like John the Baptist, who was always going before, preparing. And, Lord, you're doing that in our lives. Would you continue to do that, Lord? Help us to know what you've prepared us for. And help us to be patient, Lord, and not fall into the the cookie-cutter American dream uh, schedule that we have all succumbed to. Lord, help us to wait upon you, to be patient. And it may be different than the family next door, and that's okay, because we serve Christ. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I pray that, Father, my brothers and sisters would do the same. We love you, Father, and we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.